Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with David Cogden. David is a senior editor at the University Press of Kansas and editor of the recently released book, Varieties of Christian Universalism, Exploring Four Views. You can get connected with David and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we've got David Cogden with us, and uh, David, not only are you the senior editor or a senior editor at University Press of Kansas, uh, but uh, you're a theologian, uh, you do lots of other things in the world, and also I consider you a good friend. You actually, uh, a lot of people maybe know me from like theology Twitter stuff, right? You probably were the first like person that I knew that was sort of called like you know when that world was called theology twitter like you were the first person i followed in all of that and got me sucked into that rabbit uh that uh that rabbit trail of just theology twitter and ex-evangelical twitter and all of that so uh i owe a lot of my my twitter journey to you honestly well, thank you. I almost I wonder if I should be apologizing for, for dragging you into theology Twitter, but um, <laughs> no, that, that's that's really kind. You know, it's been you know I mean I I began all this doing in, in the back in the blog days. You know, when it was still that was still a thing, and uh, it's been nice to kind of transition into Twitter and social media. But it feels like that's kind of a at an end of an age now. I don't know. Yeah, it Are does you... kind of feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I remember, what was it, a couple years ago where there was like that conversation or that, that article about weird Christian Twitter or whatever, <laughs> yep. and and it's like, th- does any of that exist anymore? I mean, if it does, I'm blocked by all those people because I don't see <laughs> any of those people really anymore. Same. Yeah, it's a really different space now, and I think that's understandable. I mean, it is, it's a dying platform, and mm-hmm. it's very sad. You know, I, I remember the days when... I used to be able to rely on uh, live tweeting of big, you know, events, you know, you could see people interacting in real time. That's, that's all gone. Um, Mm -hmm. That whole space has been eviscerated. So it's, it's too bad, but uh, some of us are still around. We're doing our thing as long as we can. Yeah. We we need a space for the next time Trump gets COVID or the next uh, Kissinger dies. Right. Yeah. Uh, That's uh, a grim that's, reality given the election you're coming up here. Yeah, that, so. that's that's Twitter at its best is when that kind of stuff happens. Right. Uh, so anyway, you do lots of things in the world, but who is David Cogden to David Cogden? Well, that's a, a good question. I still I'm, I'm asking myself that a lot these days. Um, you know, I think, you know, this this new book is, is an attempt to sort of, you know, a fresh start on that a little bit. But, um, you know, I think primarily I. I do see myself as uh, somebody trying to uh, help bring more knowledge into the world. You know, I think that's 
a largely what I am. I'm a teacher, I, I professor. I also, you know, as an editor, I'm, I'm trying to help get people's ideas accessible and available to audiences. And so I guess in that sense, I'm sort of like a content curator, <laughs> I suppose, is a way of thinking about it. It's kind wow. of so job. emergent church of you. <laughs> I know. I've, uh, yes, I guess I've embraced the lingo of the day. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I enjoy what I do. Um, I, I'm less and less involved in theology, but um, still I still care about it, still invested in the conversation, but uh, sort of branched out into um, a wider array of topics that interest me and are hopefully um, helping others to think more clearly and critically about religion. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, even though you're not as involved with theology anymore, you've got uh, just recently released a book on theology and about to release another book on theology. And well, obviously, I want to get you back on the podcast for that book. But uh, one of those books is called Varieties of Christian Universalism, Exploring Four Views. And uh, obviously, I'm super interested in universalism. I would imagine a lot of the listeners to this podcast are interested in universalism. So I wanted, uh, you know, when I saw that you were going to have this book out, I was like, this is exactly the kind of book I want to talk to to you about. So uh, yeah, let, let's chat about the book. Uh, before we dive into the contents of the book, obviously you're an editor of this book and you, you have one of the views, but there are a few other people that wrote their own particular view. So that it's a little bit different of a book, ra you know, rather than like one person writing all of the words. You've got uh, four different people expressing four different views. Uh, but uh, because you're the editor, you have a pretty good sense of each one of these views, right? Uh, and obviously you wrote your own particular view as well. Uh, but uh, as you maybe wrote uh, for your own uh, view, or maybe as you read the views of the three others, was there anything theologically that you learned? You know, I would imagine being a good theologian means that you're constantly learning new theology. Was there anything that came up that you didn't really know before theologically as you maybe even explored your own view or the views of others? For, I mean, for sure. I mean, this project has a long history to it. I, I began the book uh, back in, oh, 2014, I think, 2015. So it really goes back quite a ways, almost 10 years now. And so my thoughts have certainly changed and, and developed over that time. Um, I, you know, I released a book in 2016, The God Who Saves, which uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with. And that book was also a, an attempt at thinking about universalism. Um, mm -hmm. That was my first real attempt to flesh out my views on this topic. And I, in between then and this book, you know, my own, my own thinking on theology uh, went through its own, you know, uh, <laughs> evangelical transition and other, other topics that kind of went through this, <clears throat> went through that period. Um, I would say the biggest shift for me and, and the thing I learned the most in putting this book together was being more aware of the late the, the developments in biblical studies, I think especially that was one of the biggest areas that I felt was weakest about my book, and I mm. needed to to correct and try to address in this one. But also, I became I I was just was much more uh, aware of just the nuances of the different positions. Um, you know, both in reading the chapters that became part of this volume, uh, but also just seeing the literature come out. I mean, David Bentley Hart's book that was a big splash in 2019 came out of course in the in the 
it before, you know, in the context of this book being worked on. And so you know, the topic of, of universalism really exploded, you know, around that time. Uh, you had a lot of com commentary about that, about that book. And, uh, and that really highlighted for me the importance of the conversation um, and also the need for some thoughtful analysis of just what are the different views and the, the uh, kind of the core ideas at the heart of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, along those lines, then, what exactly is Christian universalism? Uh, obviously, if we're going to have a conversation about this, we probably have, have to have some kind of working definition of common understanding here. So what would you say Christian universalism is or what what maybe would even be like your elevator speech of Christian yeah. universalism? That is it's, it's tough given this is a multi-view kind of book where I have right. to, there's different views on this topic. So I think at the heart of it, like the essence of it is ultimately a rejection of the idea that some people are are going to be permanently excluded from God's presence and grace, you know, or that, that yeah. there are, that there is a, there is a section of humanity, however large that might be, that will never experience or will never be saved, quote unquote, uh, whatever, however we define salvation. And that's, I think the central unifying theme in universalism is that, is the denial of that claim. Um, so that would reject things like, of course, double predestination, annihilationism, you know, various views that, you know, uh, it, it essentially come down to the claim that only a, a, a subset of humanity will be redeemed. Mm. Um, now, like the positive corollary to that negative statement is a little trickier because these different accounts of universalism have different ideas of what right. redemption and salvation mean. That, and so that's why I define universalism more negatively than positively, is that it's it's much clearer what it rejects than it is what it affirms. Right. Well, that, that certainly makes sense in regards to the fact that, like, yeah, you've got, like, very different views in this, but they're all in some way, shape, or form trying to make a claim around universalism. So I'm sure it is, like, hard to, as, like, uh, succinctly define all of them at the same time when they're all so different um but at the same time that there is like some sort of common thread and i think you're right the the, the rejection is probably the most common thread although i you know I, I wish there was some version of a like positive uh spin on that that would you know synthesize all of these views but uh but I, i'm sure that that is a very difficult thing to do the positive one i guess you could say is that everyone will be saved i suppose right. is the is the simplest concisest form of that but but that of course is uh is, is a little ambiguous you know in terms of mm -hmm. um what salvation means right I, I, should, I should say also this book was you know it, it it was meant to be larger there were meant to be some other views in there and it was it could also have still been larger than than even that there were there was a number of other of other views i think that could have been in a volume like this so you know it's even more complicated than even this volume would indicate uh, and, you know, a position that I think you would sympathize with more processed version is not in this volume. Although. I was just about to say, I'm like, I, I noticed uh, that uh, there, there's obviously not a processed version of this. And I, and I certainly, you know, and maybe yeah. we can talk about that later sure. on and how process would maybe uh, be similar and different from some of these views. But uh, certainly I, I noticed that there, there wasn't a, a specific uh, process version of it. Right.
And that's, you know, I, I would love to have a version of this book that, you know, is three times as long and would contain more, uh, a more diverse array of, of views. It, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I, this volume, uh, this book was dragging on for me. It was like this millstone around my neck, just holding me down for years. Cause I, I felt so bad about it. Cause I mean, I, I mean, I, the, the, the contributors to the volume, um, submitted their pieces to me originally back in 2017, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so even it, before DBH's book came out. Before DBH's book. Exactly. Yes. So they, they were written quite a while ago. Wow. And um, in fact, even the initial draft goes back to early 2016. So, I mean, it's, they've been in the works for some time. I had two authors, two chapter authors who just uh, never came through and, and ultimately dropped out of the book. But they were the ones kind of holding it back for a long time. And so I kept telling the editor, look, I'm waiting for these two other chapters, I'm waiting for these two other chapters, waiting and waiting. And in the midst of all that, of course, I lost my job. You know, So I lost my mm-hmm. job as a result of The God Who Saves, um, as a result of, of universalism. And uh, that um, really upended my life. You know, So I had to relocate, you know, change states, change jobs. And really couldn't get any writing done for, you know, two years or so, two or three years. And uh, this book was just languishing in my, in my files on my computer. And, uh, you know, and, and, and this is a situation in which COVID was a blessing in disguise for me. It, it meant that I now, I now work from home uh, permanently and had a lot more hours in my day back that I used to spend commuting and mm-hmm. was able to get some writing done and, and really just got the energy to, to finish this up. And I wasn't originally going to have a chapter in this book. Uh, I was only going to write the introduction oh. and, and just you know, be the kind of curator of this collection. And uh, when the other chapters didn't come through, uh, one of the, one of the uh, Robin Perry, one of the contributors to the book, suggested I write a chapter for it and i'm i'm glad i did because it was a good exercise for me and a chance to um to correct or change some of my my views from the god who saves uh but that's a bit of the story behind this book it it was it went it was quite the saga you know Mm -hmm. i I, i'm glad it's done Uh, i wish it had been done several years earlier but um but i think it's better for having gone through that process Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the book is obviously called Varieties of Christian Universalism. And so along this question of what is Christian Universalism, what makes what makes these views distinctly Christian, right? There's got to be other non-Christian versions of universalism. What makes this uh, these views distinctly Christian? Yes. Uh, I should say one of the reasons for using the word Christian here is that philosophers use the term universalism. Uh, to have their own debates about essences and accidents and these other kind of arcane uh, analytical philosophy metaphysics. So I wanted to be clear that it was a theological conversation and not a Mm. philosophical conversation. That's the primary reason for using Christian. The other thick kind of thread holding it together, of course, is there's some commitment to the notion that Christ is central to salvation, to whatever it means for universalism, you know, to be to be fully realized, Christ is involved in that in some capacity, mm-hmm. um, and so each of these chapters um, assumes that as a starting point that mm-hmm. that we can we can begin from the uh, from the conviction that uh, salvation is 
is in and through Christ. Just taking that as a given, then it's trying, it's developing um, the different ways that that Christian universalism could be elaborated uh, and mm -hmm. have been elaborated throughout Christian history. There are other versions. I, you know, one of the one of the initial kind of uh, questions I had was was whether to include a more pluralistic account of universalism in this book, um, sort of like John Hicks, or mm -hmm. um, you know, there are other other versions of this. And uh, you, know, in my introduction to the book, I I do make a, a strong argument that we should see Hick and others as within the orbit of Christian universalism. There's a tendency in this conversation to exclude them from the boundaries of Christian universalism on the grounds that they don't centralize, they don't, they don't set, uh, put the emphasis on Christ as the exclusive uh, mediator or uh, redeemer of the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and while I understand that impulse, I, I also think that there's some boundary making going on there that uh, tends to get it tends to relegate people like Hick outside the boundaries of Christianity. And to mm -hmm. me, that's a problem. That's not, uh, that's not a fair representation of his work. Um, he was certainly a philosopher and theologian working within the Christian tradition and understood his pluralism to stem from his understanding of the incarnation. So that's, I am trying to both signal that this is an intra-Christian conversation, while also I, I do want to be clear that I'm not trying to, you know, play, you know, police officer here with the boundaries of Christianity to say, oh, those theologians who aren't doing exactly right. this kind of theology are somehow um, not welcome. Well, maybe you could write a book about who's Christian and who isn't, right? <laughs> that would be appropriate. I wonder if I should, yeah, I should do that. <laughs> so obviously for people that... I'm guessing listen to this podcast, certainly myself and for you, certainly a lot of us grew up like hearing about Christian universalism and immediately being like, that's heresy. You're not supposed to believe that you'll actually go to hell if you believe that kind of thing. The irony of that. So what are some of the common misunderstandings of Christian universalism that you often hear from maybe the people that we grew up, uh, you know, the evangelicals that we grew up with, or maybe even some like Catholic misunderstandings or whoever it might be. But what are some of the common misunderstandings you often hear when people talk about Christian universalism? I mean, far and away, the biggest misunderstanding is the idea that that those of us who embrace or want to embrace universalism only do so because we are trying to capitulate to the culture and yeah, get away with your sin, right? Get away with our sin. Uh, we want an easy faith that doesn't, you know, doesn't have any real demands, no real teeth to it. Uh, we're just trying to um, get this kind of wishy-washy uh, faith. Uh, that's, I hear that all the time. It, it's very common um, among those who are more the gatekeepers in, in Christian theology. And the, the reality is that those of us who came to this position do so because we took the Bible more seriously than, than, they, than the alternatives were. I mean, it's, they're, uh, they're just, there are so many, I mean, not just the Bible, but just, just, just theology more generally. I, I, I think the, the arguments for universalism are, uh, in my, my view, incredibly compelling and very strong on both textual and logical grounds, uh, as well, of course, as experiential. And so I think there's, uh, you know, that, that whole line of argumentation that the universalists are less rigorous in their faith 
is is the exact opposite of, of mm-hmm. the truth, right? Um, and now that being said, I do also think that there is a, a further misunderstanding about why universalism is uh, is as compelling today for so many people, you know, more so today than it used to be. And so that if that whole argument that it's just a wishy-washy attempt to capitulate the culture is wrong, like what's what's a better explanation? Well, it's it is true that there's a biblical and theological warrant for it for sure, but also I think a big part of it for those of us who are evangelical who kind of went through that whole phase is is that universalism is a it's understandable given the way that church boundaries, the boundaries of salvation, the boundaries of Christian community, those of us who grew up in, the, in that culture and that in that kind of rigid evangelical framework, we just saw the the patent hypocrisy and the the abusive power dynamics involved in the in the policing of who is in and who is out, and as that whole framework and that entire way of of managing the boundaries of, of christian identity kind of crumbled the the rationale for for rejecting universalism crumbled as well mm-hmm. uh, because it you know it, the there was there's no, there was never a really good reason to insist on the uh the permanent exclusion of some from god's grace other than that this was what the tradition told us to believe and that this was the the this was what protected the superiority of those who were within the church those who were within the bounds of the true faith that whole way of thinking requires a rejection of universalism because it it needs to insist that you have to belong to this church if you're going to do if you're going to be right with god you have to to conform to our moral, political, social, you know, liturgical, you know, demands to, to have that, to be saved, to have that right, you know, to have that right relationship with God. So universalism strikes at the very heart of the power dynamics that are, are, are so embedded in, in evangelicalism. Um, like it, in that way, it's the ultimate heresy uh, because it, it is the one you know, quote unquote heresy that uh, undermines the the Christian supremacy mm-hmm. that is at root in you know white evangelicalism, and so I, I think for those of us who have seen our church leaders, um, you know, reveal themselves for who they are, have seen our denominations and churches kind of crumble in in, in response to you know, all kinds of things, whether it's sexual abuse issues or, you know, pastoral abuse problems, you know, there are all, all kinds of, of dynamics, you know, it, it, it made it almost necessary to reopen the case and reopen and reexamine these issues about salvation since the, the problems with decide, you know, of determining who's in and who's out, all that became uh, open to critique. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the, Christian supremacy piece is often an argument that you hear from those circles against Christian universalism. Because again, in in this book, there is a reason why it's Christian universalism and not some sort of generic pluralistic universalism, right? So there is some sort of claim being made by each one of these uh each one of the views and the authors of each one of the views that there is a necessity to Jesus Christ. 
right? Sure. It's not just that like there's no reason. That's one of the arguments you sometimes hear from the from like the evangelical world or the conservative Christian world is that, you know, if, if universalism is true, what's the point of Jesus? They're, 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 in, in their eyes, there is no reason for Jesus. But what I lo- love about each one of these views is, especially you get it, you know, in the Bardian view uh, or even the evangelical view that's in here, is the necessity of Jesus when it comes to universalism. So th- that's one of those arguments that I often hear is, you know, what's the point of Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, it almost feels like Jesus. If universalism is true, Jesus, at least according to these views, like is the is the pathway for that to happen, for it to be true. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely yeah, you're right. There, um, one of the one of the kind of takeaways from this book, I hope for many people, is that uh, yeah, you don't have to give up any of your commitments about the importance of Jesus to be a universalist. Mm-hmm. That that there is no conflict there whatsoever. Um, people who want to cite, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as you often hear from, you know, the anti-universalist uh, rhetoric, um, it just doesn't. That's just not a requirement. Um, you can you can keep all of the same commitments about Christ and and embrace a, a much wider uh, and universal hope of salvation, and um, that's completely within the boundaries there of that mm-hmm. of that tradition. I think the 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 challenge um, to kind of clarify what I was saying before is that while it's Christian in the sense that it's focused on Christ, it's not necessarily ecclesial in the sense that it's focused on the church. Mm. That's the big difference: is that the church is no longer is displaced from its role in 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 uh, managing and determining the boundaries of salvation. So mm. there's a stronger emphasis on Christ arguably than in more traditional theologies, but a de-emphasis on the church as being the exclusive, you know, arbiter and, and sphere of that salvation. It is funny when evangelicals and Catholics have something in common. (laughs) I mean, that's a good, I mean, there is a real uh, conversation point to be had there about the alliance of Catholics and evangelicals uh, in kind of contemporary society. I think that's there's a political alliance going on there but on this point here too there's a there's a theological alliance i want to invite you to the q christian fellowship conference on january 11th through the 14th 2024 in albuquerque new mexico are you lgbtq and christian or are you an ally of the lgbtq community and looking to learn how to better uplift the lives of lgbtq individuals in faith-based spaces This conference is an annual gathering where LGBTQ Christians, parents, and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, and keynote speakers, making lifelong friendships, experiencing healing, transformation, and hope, and witnessing the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. This year's speakers include Miles Markham, Bishop Joseph William Tolton, Kathy Baldock, Britt Barron, and special guests Flamie Grant, Matthias Roberts, and many more presenters who are deeply committed to this work, including this podcast, A People's Theology, which will record a live episode that you can attend. Register today at qcfconf.org with the code A People's Theology, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount off your conference registration. Q Christian Fellowship, cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ Christians and allies through a commitment to growth, community, and relational justice. I hope to see you there. So obviously in the book, 
we've talked about this uh, just a bit, but there's four views that are represented in this Christian universalism, and they're all a little different. There's the patristic view, there's the evangelical view, there's the post-Bardian view, and then obviously yours, the existential view. Can you talk through each one of these? Uh, maybe, maybe we start out with the patristic, because I think that was the first mm -hmm. one, if I remember right. Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Um, so the patristic view is an early Christian account. Um, it, this is, it's, Obviously, there are multiple different patristic accounts of universalism. Uh, broadly speaking, they all share certain features. They they all do still have a kind uh, some kind of afterlife, including a judgment. There is a a purgative judgment that happens um, after after death. The the crucial aspects here are that 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 purgation, that judgment that occurs, is for our healing. It's for our, our kind of, it's an educative, educative uh, healing kind of uh, medical, surgical uh, aspect of judgment in which um, God is kind of like this divine doctor who is healing us from our, our moral uh, infirmities and, and ills and, and then making us more and more perfect in, in the beyond. There, it's a, there's a stronger emphasis on reading scripture. So there's a, a bigger emphasis on exegesis of biblical texts in this patristic mm -hmm. account of universalism. Um, and then more interestingly, there's the aspect of the fallen angels, uh, the demons, the devil, as being caught up in this cosmic universal salvation. So, you, so salvation for this account is not strictly focused on humans, but it's a cosmic salvation that includes the entire created order including uh, both visible and invisible. Mm. So would they would the Christian patristics even say or you know some of them say that even Satan would be saved? Some of them did. Sure. Uh, I mean that's Origen's most famous uh, idea on that point um and it's a bit it's a bit ambiguous. I, you know there's not like extensive discussion about about Satan being saved, uh but it is strongly implied if not outright suggested that that's, mm -hmm. that that will be the case. Yeah. Yeah. One of the arguments I often hear when you bring up the fact that universalism is as almost as old as Christianity itself is that, oh, that was condemned as a heresy, you know, or origin was condemned as a heretic. Do you want to just briefly talk through that history and why that is maybe way more complicated than some yep. people would like to to make it seem? There is a council that that condemned origin, uh, but it was not his universalism per se, that was being condemned, but rather his doctrine of the uh, the eternal, the pre-existence pre of souls. So in Origen's idea, God creates souls uh, in eternity, and then the souls uh, uh, kind of descend, like they have their own incarnation and descend into uh, you know, human history and the world and take on a body. And, and then they live in the body uh, they kind of, they're like, they're hot and then they cool down as they enter the body, they live this life and then they have to kind of be extracted and redeemed from their bodies and return to their heavenly source. Mm -hmm. So there's, that's this kind of like this cosmic scope of the argument for, for, for origin about how salvation occurs is that, you know, eventually all those souls will be reclaimed by God and brought back to their, to their fullness, uh, within the divine life. And that idea was condemned. Um, uh, you know, so it's 
it is certainly a crucial part of Origen's argument for his account of of universalism, mm -hmm. um, but it's not his account of universalism per se that's being condemned. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, we can see that because there are plenty of other universalists, Gregor of Nyssa and others who all also uh, believed in universalism, um, but did not have Origen's specific kind of platonic account right. of the soul. Next one was evangelical, I believe, which I would imagine for those who of us who grew up in youth group culture, we're like, wait, there's an evangelical account of universalism. Like what what uh, what Rob Bell version of this uh, exists? <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought he got farewell. <laughs> yeah, he, he certainly did. Yeah, this actually this account um, originated before Rob Bell's uh, whole uh, whole fiasco. So Robin Perry, uh, who was writing under a pseudonym, uh, Gregory McDonald wrote a book called The Evangelical Universalist back in the early 2000s. And that, that book initiated a lot of this conversation. Uh, yeah, you know, Robin's work is, uh, works and operates within the traditional boundaries of evangelicalism. So he accepts a standard evangelical account of salvation. You know, it, that, all of that is in place. The only change he makes is to say that death is not some final moment that we, you know, by by what point we have to make a decision for Christ. Um, you, mm. People can make their decision for Christ throughout eternity, and eventually everyone will. Yeah, yeah. Eternity is a long time <laughs> to make that decision. A long, yes, there, yes, it is uh, open-ended uh, time for for decisions of faith to occur. Um, there is still for Robin a heaven and hell in that sense. There's, you know, so people who have not accepted Christ within their life, they do go to a, uh, to a hell after death. Um, but that hell is not some sort of permanent, you know, it's not an eternal conscious torment that is going to exclude uh, the possibility of salvation. So it's it's a conscious torment, but it it, it likely will be temporary, yeah, right? Yes, a, a temporary conscious torment. Sure. Yes. Interesting. Uh, I think the next one was the post-Bardian mm -hmm. uh, view, which uh, I, I had a video a few months ago, or maybe it was even close to a year ago now, where I talked a little bit about different understandings of heaven and hell. And uh, I, I make the argument, obviously, that I don't believe in hell for a number of reasons, uh, most of which is that because I don't believe God is all-powerful, obviously being a process person. Mm -hmm. But I did say in this video, like, if if you were to believe God is all-powerful, I think the only way to really navigate that is maybe more of this Bardian view uh, of a very all-powerful, sovereign God. Uh, and, and so I, I think Bart's mm -hmm. understanding of universalism, even though I'm very much not Reformed, I do think it's a really compelling way of thinking about uh, a universalism and certainly God. So do you want to talk through the, the post-Bardian understanding of universalism? Yeah, I mean, that, this was my position for a while. I had a blog series back in you know, 2006, I believe, that kind of uh, inaugurated my blogging career where I talked about why I'm a universalist. And it was more or less this version of universalism, um, which goes back to Karl Barth. So okay, as you pointed out, you know, Barth is a reformed theologian. He believes very strongly in divine sovereignty and, and including a doctrine of divine election. Uh, Barth's big innovation theologically is to say that election is universal. There's a single e universal election in which God elects to be God for us in Jesus Christ, and that Christ's self-election, you know, God's election to be Christ, um, inc is inclusive of all humanity. 
precisely because the humanity of Christ is 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 a universal humanity. All humans are included in His incarnation, and uh, and for that reason are included in the election and grace uh, accomplished in Him. And uh, so, yeah, I do think I do think of, of you know of those options in terms of you know for those who are coming at this from a more uh, reformed, uh, you know, traditionally Protestant account. Um, Bart's approach is very compelling. Uh, there's a lot to say for it. Um, I, I think its its strength is that it preaches really well because you can emphasize mm. a lot of the traditional doctrines and you can emphasize, as, as in, in, most importantly, you can emphasize that this salvation is this objective reality in Christ, that what Christ did you know, in his life, death and resurrection, that is done. You know, it's, it's, it's for all. Everyone is saved already. Um, there is no hell, <clears throat> and the goal of the church's, you know, mission and and their work is to help people realize the truth about who they already are in Christ. You know, so the, <clears throat> so it has a lot of kind of pastoral potential there. Um, it changes the message that the church gives from a message of "you're a sinner, you need Christ" to "you've already been saved, uh, just live like it." You know, and so mm -hmm. it um, it has a lot of legs, I think, in terms of that kind of pastoral possibilities. So I do think it, it's it's there's a yeah, it has a lot going for it. Bart himself famously denied being a universalist, so there's a whole part. That's why we called it a post-Bardian universalism was to address the objection from certain you know hardcore Bart readers who say, "Look, Bart Bart denies universalism," and that's true. Um, but I also think it's only sort of half true. Bart was famously ambiguous about these topics. He, there was a famous line that was recorded by Eberhard Jungel, one of his uh, students of his, that where uh, Bart said that <clears throat> regarding universalism, he does not teach it, but he also does not not teach it. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's about as clear as Bart gets when it comes to this topic. Um, I've made the case in my own writings that he is, in all for all intents and purposes, he is a universalist. Um, what he denies is not the universal scope of salvation, but rather <clears throat> he wants to deny that salvation is sh should be seen simply in terms of the objective reality of whether we're going to be uh, redeemed or not. For him, salvation, properly speaking, is also about living a life. Of a faithful witness and participation in the life in in you know in the Christian community, and so <clears throat> he doesn't want to ignore that aspect of it, and he's afraid that people who who too quickly emphasize universalism ignore the more subjective aspect of participating in Christian community, sharing mm -hmm. in that work of. Uh, being uh, involved in the work of making the world a better place, you know, so saved and always be saved. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and the last one, existential uh, universalism that obviously you wrote, you wrote about uh, and certainly you're expanding on from your God Who Saves book. Yeah, this chapter was, um, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, I really enjoyed the chance to kind of really dig back into that material I mean, just briefly, uh, I mean, this is a certainly a, uh, it's a, it's an unusual position compared to the other ones in the book. 
um, because I, I start from the premise that there's no afterlife. Um, I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I, well, the typical view about universalism or about salvation in general is that we're talking about some destination beyond death. And I think that's mm -hmm. fine. I think if that's, if that's the primary concern that somebody has and somebody wants a theology about the afterlife, um, then the other positions in the book are perfectly fine and are worth considering. I was wanting to write, I'm wanting to write for an audience that um, is a little more skeptical, is not necessarily convinced that uh, there's some uh, there's some heaven or, or, or some place beyond death that we are going to go to. You know, I, I think there are a lot of people who might be very spiritual, even religious, but not necessarily convinced about some of the old metaphysics regarding uh, some spiritual realm. And so I, I, have, I began the chapter by kind of reviewing a lot of the, the evidence against an afterlife, looking at psychological uh, materials, looking at history of religion and theology. I, I took talk about Bart. Bart also himself rejected a conscious afterlife. Um, so I kind of review that material and just, you know, say, look, I'm going to provide a, an account of universalism for those of us who are more, are more skeptical about this topic. Um, can we still mm -hmm. talk about universalism uh, without that? And I say we can. Um, I, you know, I think some people will certainly deny that it qualifies as universalism for that reason. But that, that was the impetus for that chapter. So at the heart of it is... Uh, a claim that salvation is ultimately about where God is present in the world. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to argue that God is savingly, redeemingly present everywhere to all people. Um, and that that saving presence is, is unconscious. In other words, it doesn't require our conscious acknowledgement of, of God uh, or our conscious participation in religion, uh, but rather that saving presence of God is, uh, is occurring in our lives at an unconscious level. And so mm -hmm. what I try to do in that chapter is provide a theological, a Christian theological argument for affirming God's unconscious saving presence in our lives. Um, and mm -hmm. I do that through, you look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his account of unconscious Christianity. Uh, I do, I have a kind of a, a novel reading of, Gen of, of Galatians, uh, where, where I read it existentially as a message about Christ's agency in our life in, in, at an unconscious level. But then I think, and most importantly, I can conclude the chapter with sort of a you know come to Jesus moment for my fellow theologians and and I just I think Christians in general to really kind of think carefully about. Uh, even those of us who are universalists, you know, in some ways, my, my, at the end of that chapter is almost a word of warning to even my fellow universalists, because I really do worry that a lot of the discourse around universalism and around salvation in general uh, too often presupposes that uh, Christianity is the superior religion and we need to make sure everyone is ultimately Christian. And I, mm. I really want to press hard against that idea. I certainly think that's it's perfectly fine to be Christian uh, and to participate in the church, uh, but um, but I don't think that universalism as a theological position should be embraced simply because it will help get more people into the church or that it'll be a better argument for being Christian. 
that's not mm-hmm. the reason I think to expound universalism. Um, and I think we need to be really careful about, you know, some of the language that we use about the, um, you know, that, that life will be better if you're a Christian, you know, that your mm-hmm. life will be superior. Yeah. That actually connects to one of the next questions I was going to have around some of the, what seem like fair critiques of specifically Christian universalism is this like sort of theological colonization, if you will, that you sometimes hear these arguments of, you know, for for example, you know, let, let's say uh, Christian universalism is true, then what does that mean for like the Hindu or Muslim in the world? Does that mean that when they're redeemed, that they're just being redeemed to the Christian understanding of God and, and the life of God? Like, how do how should we think through that religious plurality given this universalism, uh, if it is true? And and what that, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, how we ought to think through some of that religious plurality um, w- without it trying to be kind of this like colonizing theology, but in an obviously more progressive universal lens. Yeah, that is the strongest objection to universalism in my view, uh, without question. And I, that was, um, I, you know, I, I tried to deal with that directly in my chapter for that very reason, because I, I do want to address that concern. I, I do think that, um, well, okay, so let me just say, uh, there are certainly people who are universalists, Christian universalists, who probably wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that more colonizing perspective. So I don't want to speak for all universalists, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I, right. Um, my position, and I think there are others who are in, in my, in my shoes here who also are concerned about this problem, but there are certainly other Christian universalists who are not. This is where I think David Bentley Hart is really good. I mean, Hart himself, uh, tries to write with kind of a multi-religious perspective. Um, and his books, uh, tend to avoid as much Christian, you know, theology as possible, even though he's doing theology, you know, so, you know, he, he won't speak about the Trinity necessarily. He'll just talk about kind of a generic God in a, in a more generic sense that could be embraced by, by most religious people. And I, and that's true. I think also in terms of for myself, what, how I'm trying to approach it. I, I say very clearly in my chapter that universalism as a doctrine is only for Christians. In other words, it's it's a not it's not a statement about other people, uh, people who are not Christian. Mm-hmm. It's a statement about how we as Christians who identify as Christian should see the world. In other words, how we should perceive others within the terms mm-hmm. of our own community. It's not a statement about other people outside the community as such. If that makes sense. So I. I I argue that it, it it should be we should understand this this conversation and this doctrine this theology uh, as something to kind of help reform Christians' moral imagination uh, as a way to it should be a way to to condition us away from from viewing others as as outside of God's grace or, or excluded from you know from God it's it's a way of, of seeing the world through the eyes of this kind of universal scope of, of divine love. So that's, that's kind of how I want to, to kind of couch it is to, to make that kind of reframe it in those terms. Um, it's not a statement about the Hindu or the Buddhist or whoever say you actually are a Christian, whether you know it or not, that's, mm. 
that mm -hmm. I mean, emphatically wanting to deny that that's what universalism is trying to say. Mm -hmm. One of the other arguments I often hear, even from maybe non-religious people, is if universalism is true, what does that mean for people like Hitler? And, you know, and obviously it goes into I always forget what that like term is where you, you just go to the Holocaust or Hitler. Yeah, but right. uh, you know, I've gotten this, too, from from people who I don't, aren't even Christian about, you know, the, the fact that you know, whenever I talk about universalism and they're like, so you believe that Hitler's in heaven or, you, you know, Hitler's uh, reconciled with God or whatever. And and a lot of times it's sort of like an I got you Twitter <laughs> thing. But. I do want like it is something I think for us to consider. And I, I don't know if there's one particular view in the book that you think maybe addresses that better. Maybe it's your own view. I don't know. But I'm curious, like how you would think through what what does universalism mean then for the, the most evil people that have existed in the world? This is a point that the, the views in the book do certainly differ on. And I, you know, you, I could have restructured this book around this problem. Um, it might be worth doing that in the future, but it really depends on how much one thinks that the point of the a doctrine of the afterlife, uh, you know, uh, of divine judgment, how much is that? a matter of trying to address evil in the world. Like to what extent is our doctrine of salvation really a statement about the, you know, um, um, how to solve or how to address human atrocities. So like the patristic universalism position is very much attuned to the problem of human evil and the need to address it. And, and for that reason, it places a great emphasis on purgation as being what occurs after death, that everyone goes through a process of being purged of their evil, their sin, you know, whatever it might be that needs to be perfected and, and redeemed. So there's a strong emphasis on that as the point of salvation. That's the goal, is to get everyone to be purged and pure. The you know, the other ones are have varying levels of this. I my own position in, in my chapter because I don't have an afterlife is to say that this isn't the responsibility. This isn't the point of a doctrine of salvation or an afterlife. Or uh, mm -hmm. it's, the purpose is not about dealing with injustice in the world. That part of my part of my my problem, my my beef with a lot of Christian theology is the assumption that we need to both reject universalism and we need a doctrine of hell as a way to ensure that people get their just desserts. Like that's mm. that's ultimately the goal that a lot of people have, and and people, a lot of people believe in God simply because they they need this this at the heart of their of their life. They need to believe that that person who you know bullied me or whoever they're going to get it in the end. Like mm -hmm. God's, 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 God's got their ledger going on and that, that person is going to get it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people, that's what religion does for them. It assures them that they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, comfortable ultimately in the end, that their hard life will be made great and that their enemies are going to, are going to get screwed, you know? And I understand at a deep visceral level, the need to have that to to want god to be the one who is going to bless you and screw over your enemies 
but I also think that that <laughs> that this might not be the healthiest way of viewing God, uh, and not the mm-hmm. healthiest approach to uh, to being a a part of a religious community, and that it might be we might need we, might, we ought to consider whether there are other values and goals here. It's understandable given the the massive atrocities that have occurred in human history to to really want these to be rectified and, and, and addressed and solved. The problem is that we all have different accounts of what these atrocities are. I mean, I mean, I suppose in some sense we could all think that God is is like this perfect referee who in the end is going to get all the calls right. You know, everyone's going to get exactly the amount of punishment they deserve. NFL should hire uh <laughs> right it's should hire God yeah I mean that's in some ways like that's kind of I wonder if that's how a lot of people just view God and view religion is like that this is really what it is about I mean God's got this playback you know tape and it's gonna like got the perfect call okay that person is 40 percent in the wrong here this person here is 85 percent in the wrong over there and also, yeah. it sort of assumes that you, like, if you hold this view, that you have never been in the right. wrong uh, about any of this. And yep. even, you know, sometimes we hear some of the, like, hyper-Calvinists around this of, like, they, they believe that they're totally depraved. But it's like, does that actually play out of the fact that you, do you truly believe that you deserve hell and you just so happen to be one of the elect? Like, I don't think I've ever met a, a Calvinist that doesn't think that they've been elected, <laughs> right? So it's like... So they always still at the end of the day think that they were are part of the elect. They're part of the ones that, you know, even if they have done wrong in the world, uh, that th- their wrong doesn't uh, overcome uh, the the good that they've done in the world. And therefore, uh, you know, anyway, I, that, I find that always really funny from that. Position. I mean, you're, you're you're exactly right on that. It's it, We all are. We our human impulse is to see ourselves as being in the right. You know, I, I get that. That's a psychological impulse and instinct we all have. Um, and I think in many ways, religion has functioned as the eternalization of this innate human impulse. We want to kind of eternalize and project how we see the world onto God. And, and God is always going to be on our side. You know, that's always how that's going to play out. And, um, and so I, in, in, the, in my chapter in the book, I call this kind of a Santa Claus deity, you know, this, uh, this picture of God as you know, got the list of who's naughty and who's nice. And uh, we always see ourselves as on the nice list. <laughs> and and we just, uh, we assume that that's, that's how it's going to play out. And, and you know, I, I worry about the, the, the moral character that that shapes people into. If that's what we mm-hmm. go to religion for, that's what we go to God for. Yeah, I, 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 wonder, I worry that that perpetuates... Uh, a social and political climate in which you know we're we're just out to see our enemies get crushed uh, and mm-hmm. um, that uh, that doesn't really seem to be in line with a lot of what I see in the in the in the Christians you know in, in the Testament mm-hmm. and the life of Jesus. This episode of a People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, 
academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. One of the questions, again, that I often hear from people that are just starting to explore universalism maybe for the first time is, especially those of us, or for those who came out of the evangelical tradition, is the fact that they think it's not biblical. Not only is it heretical, but it's also not biblical. And you talked a little bit about how, in your own view, uh, with God Who Saves, you didn't have a ton of like biblical support, and I know you explored that a little bit more in this chapter, uh, in this book, and, and certainly in some of the other uh, chapters, we see quite a bit of biblical support. So can you talk through maybe some of those like maybe more well-known biblical passages uh, that, that would maybe potentially support some kind of universalist view? <laughs> Sure. I mean, I, I, I do exegesis in, in, my, in my chapter and also in my book, um, but I also want to like stress that, you know, the Bible is not, there's no clear account here from, from the right. Bible. And so part of the reason why I de-emphasize the Bible is simply because ultimately that's not what's deciding whether one person falls uh, one way or the other. Uh, this Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, had a book called Dare We Hope That All Men Will Be Saved. And and his argument in that book um, is that the Bible has two kinds of passages: the universal passages and the you know the the condemnation or sep- or exclusive passages. Um, and there's no resolution to to be had between them. And so, what the Christian should do is simply be agnostic about that uh, to to allow for there to be a hopeful universalism. But that's as far as we can go. Now, I think that that position is wrong, but uh, but I do think he's right to say that the Bible is sort of split. On this point, right, pretty evenly almost. Um, in terms of the universal passages, like the big ones would be uh, uh, Ephesians five, uh, uh, yeah, Romans five. I should say Romans five, with uh, the Christ and Adam uh, typology, mm. where Paul talks about how just as all have are in have sinned, you know, just as all are in Adam and are condemned to death, so all will be made alive in Christ. You know, there's this kind of parallel here. And Paul actually is very clear that the on the on the Christ side, the Christ side is bigger or you know superior to the Adam side. So, for, if if you emphasize that all have sinned and all are guilty, uh, uh, you know, on the Adam side, then even more so, you should believe in a universal scope of salvation because of the Christ side of that dynamic. Um, that's a big one. Um, there are. Uh, there are other passages in certainly in Paul's letters that stress this kind of broad scope of salvation. The reason, uh, I mean, it, in terms of other things to to mention here would would probably be just the language of the Gospels and Jesus' own language about the outsider and the, you know um, mm-hmm. the welcoming you know uh, language for all people. But I, I do think that one of the reasons why I've become even less emphatic about the scriptural side of things is that um, I, I, th- I think the more recent literature and scholarship on 
the New Testament and even on Paul makes the, the idea that we can get a universalism out of Paul more difficult. And so, you know, it's, it, it's also just that I, the New Testament is not a Christian text, you know, or a set of texts. These are all documents from a, a kind of an apocalyptic Jewish sect, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. had, had nothing to do with what we call Christianity. And, um, and so it's really hard to kind of draw out a lesson or a theology from these texts, given that they're the gap between those texts and us is so unbridgeable in, in, in a sense that um, I don't know how helpful it is to point to universalist texts in, in the New Testament. They, they are certainly there and there's quite a few of them. Uh, Robin Perry, you know, writing under Gregory MacDonald in his book, The Evangelical Universalist, goes through a lot of them, maybe all of them. Uh, so I do find that book to be the most helpful. If you want to see all the New Testament texts that are relevant here, uh, he's pretty comprehensive on that point. Yeah, I think you bringing up that point of the fact that at the end of the day, every single book that we have in the Bible, at least in the canon, is not written by a person that would have identified as a Christian, yep. right? And, and we often nowadays think, you know, what when or you know, some Christian communities often think through the the these scripture passages as if these are Christians writing to other Christians, and that just simply is not the case. And so, when it when it comes to doing Christian theology, then it it just seems really unhelpful to um, try to think that the Bible is the only way we can do Christian theology, given the fact that. These are not actually written by Christians. It yep. just seems like an increasingly unhelpful way of actually doing Christian theology. No, I, uh, I agree exactly. And I think that's why in some ways the patristic universalists are really helpful here because they were quite willing to be very creative uh, in their readings of the Bible because they knew that these texts couldn't be just taken as is. They had to be filtered through right. you know, how we think about them. We mentioned at the beginning, obviously, you do not explore all of the different types of Christian universalism. And you even mentioned, you know, there certainly is not a process view in this book. Uh, I'm curious, like maybe some of those other views that you at least want to kind of name or mention uh, that may may be worth highlighting. Um, I think the big one that I would love to have in there more is kind of a more of a liberationist view of universalism. Mm. I I try Mm -hmm. to integrate that into my chapter uh, so I do deal with some of the liberationist theologians uh, in my discussion of my work. Are, are there any particular liberationist theologians that have a a very like distinct liberationist view of universalism, or at least have maybe a chapter in one of their works around? Yes. It? So Ignacio Eacuria, uh, he has a chapter on universal salvation, and I discuss him a little bit in my chapter. So if you want references, you can find them in my in my chapter in the book. But Eacuria uh, talks about universal salvation. And, and what's helpful about him is that he couches this in terms, well, it's still a universalism. He's very clear that, that the universalism uh, is ultimately going to be realized through the elimination of class differences, right? So it's, it's within, Mm -hmm. within a, it's kind of an intra-historical universal salvation. You know, you could call it a kingdom of God, but it's one in which there is the elimination of that, of kind of that class oppression. And so, you know, so I, I engage with it a little bit, um, but I ultimately want to steer away from it in my own chapter because I think it falls, falls prey to some of the same problems with gen- just afterlife speculation in general. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, but I do really like the vision that Ea Korea wants to articulate 
And so that's that's the main one that I think of. I mean, John Sabrino would be another theologian who uh, I don't know if he explicitly talks about universalism, but he certainly gestures in that direction. You know, his book about uh, salvation coming through the poor outside outside the poor, there's no salvation. That's kind of that's his kind of claim. And so there's another sense in which uh, for Ea for Sabrino, for others like Leonardo, Leonardo Boff. Uh, there's a there is a salvation. Um, it's going to come through the liberation uh, of humanity by virtue of the poor rising up in revolution over against uh, class oppression and, and, and hierarchy. Yeah, in the the process view, you know, I, I shouldn't even really say there's much of a process view, or at least there's obviously many mm, sure. of them. But yeah, there's uh, yeah, I, I think. Um, Part of the issue within the process view is there's there's really few, if any, process theologians that have any sort of sense of an immortal soul that exists. And, and so that th throws a wrench into it, you know, in comparison to especially like the evangelical uh, universalist view, you know, where there is this sort of metaphysics or a necessity for an immortal soul to exist metaphysically. Obviously, if you don't have that in process theology, that kind of you have to think through this a little differently yep. uh, the sort of view that i've gotten this a sense of from process and i think it's actually maybe closer to yours yes, than i think the so. other three yep. is is this sense that the memory of each one of us will be lived on in the life of god mm -hmm. and uh, i often have like even thrown a little bit of a twist on that of you know eventually our bodies will decay uh, be decomposed, and that decomposition will breed nutrients uh, into the ground, and that that ground will grow grass, and maybe a deer will eat that grass, and so like sort of our lives will live on in that way as well. And so it's not just that our memory will live on in the life of God, but also that our bodies, our our physicality, will actually live on in in future generations. And so. Uh, I know that doesn't really answer the problem of evil question that we've brought up and everything exactly, but I do think that feels like a more naturalist version that you would maybe see in process theology. Uh, so, but it, but there is something very deeply existential about it too, especially with sort of our memory being lived on in the life of God. Yeah, I'm more or less on board with that. I think that's that's pretty close to my position, or if not exactly my position. Um, it's. Um, I, I think it also shares some of uh, actually even Karl Barth's uh, ideas about the afterlife. Um, Barth's kind of critique, uh, you know, he he rejects a conscious afterlife, but he wants to say that in some sense our lives are, you know, the 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 memory of our history is is taken up into God's life eternally, you know, so that the histories that we've all lived. Are preserved in God's being, you know, and that's mm. um, I, I quite like that. There's a beautiful sense there in which, um, you know, both Bart and his student Eberhard Jungel both talk about how uh, eternal life is not a life lived beyond this life, but it's, it's the eternalization of the life that we have lived. So mm -hmm. it's it's that life that we've lived taken up into God's life, um, and I think that's a pretty yeah. beautiful way of framing it. Yeah, and I think there's something really beautiful about that eternally our memory will be lived on uniquely and personally as if God knew us as a parent or a loved one. 
And and the other thing that I think that's really interesting about that is the fact that, you know, even the bug that I probably stepped on this morning or whatever it is also and to some degree has some sort of relationship with God that God knew that that bug or whatever, that blade of grass personally. And and what I think what's cool about it, at least from a process view, is process's understanding of God has the capacity to hold like billions and trillions of living things and to have a personal relationship eternally with each one of those. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a really compelling way of thinking about God and the fact that God can have that kind of depth of relationship with so many things eternally. I'm I'm on board. Um, I also think that the idea about the you know, going back into dust, you know, dust, we will return idea. Mm -hmm. There's something about that, which is actually deeply uh, biblical in this sense. Um, in, in the, it, so one of the things that I have, have been exploring more in my work, and I, I touch on this a little bit in my chapter, is the, the more recent work on ancient views about the body and ancient views about resurrection. You know, for, for Paul and others in the ancient world, uh, resurrection is not that you know our mortal bodies as we live in them now will be you know revived and returned to to eternal uh, you know existence but rather that our fleshly bodies are replaced with the stuff of stars that is uh mm. in, in paul's view our bodies will be transformed into stardust um what it's what matthew Thiessen, the biblical scholar calls astralization we become stars um and you know, so we see this in 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 Paul's references to Abraham and the idea that you know uh, about the star, uh, starlight. Uh, this is a, a lot of lot of New Testament scholarship here. I'm referring to that we can skip over. But but what I love about this is that in our in our modern scientific world, we understand that stardust is simply the material stuff of the world. You know, it's the mm -hmm. atoms of whatever helium and hydrogen and and all the rest. And so to become, to return to dust, return to the stuff of the, of the earth, uh, we are in, in a real sense joining in with, we are in some sense, we, we're being resurrected as our bodies go into the dirt, go into the ground and become one with the flowers and the worms and all the rest. So I think in that mm -hmm. sense, the, the New Testament vision about resurrection is actually being fulfilled in our lives every, every time we die and go into the earth just not the way that most Christians want to think about it. Yeah, I think there's something we said around, it seems as if a lot of universalisms don't take into account the the origins of the universe and the likely death of the universe and and just the whole cosmic history of the universe and the fact that and i know there's multiple theories of how the universe will end um but the fact that like at some point in probably however many years we as humans will not exist as a species what does a universal universalism like that how does it take into account that there's going to be billions and possibly trillions of years where human beings won't exist and it seems as if a lot of universalisms don't take into that into account and how they think through their cosmic history in that regard whereas i think more of this existentialist view or this process view potentially at least because there is kind of this naturalism to it allows at least a possibility or takes into account the fact that at some point the universe might go back into a singularity once again. Yeah. I, I do think that Christians would be better off if we um, 
did to eschatology what we've done to creation. That is, you know, let the scientists handle it. You know, we don't worry about how the universe came into existence. At least most of, most of us don't. Um, we're quite happy with whatever scientific theory that the sci- you know, that others have come up with regarding the origins of life and, and, the, and the universe. That's not what we think theology is trying to talk about when we talk about creation. Right. And why should the end of the world be any different? You know, why should eschatology be any different than creation on this on this point? Yeah. So I think we should be willing to make peace with that. A little bit ago, we were talking about how universalism ought to shape the way we live in the world. Obviously, Bart stresses this quite a bit. Uh, one, one of the things that, uh, or, or an episode I did, I think maybe over two years ago now, was with Hannah Bowman. And she does this really great connection between abolitionism and universalism. And I, and I think uh, she makes such a great connection there where, at the end of the day, universalism makes this assumption that at some point, Everyone will be redeemed and is able to be redeemed. Uh, you know, the the idea that somebody could go to hell is essentially the idea that at some po- at some point somebody is going to be out of a loving relationship with God and therefore unredeemable. And I think it's really really important for us to think through universalism, not just in terms of an afterlife or whatever, but also to think through the fact that if somebody is um, eternally never going to be unredeemable, then that probably should shape the way that I treat each and every single human being, right? And so that obviously gets into lots of questions around what does it mean then for accountability and prison systems and policing and all these different kind of political questions around that. But at the the core assumption is the fact that no one is unredeemable. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that really shapes the way that I want to live in the world. And, and all of it is undergirded by this universalism. So I'm curious kind of how you think through some of those more um, outwardly practical um, ways that universalism should shape the way we live in the world. Universalism, in my view, is the end of the cosmic carceral system. That's hmm. That is what universalism fundamentally is at a political, ethical level. And so I'm, I'm with Hannah on it. I mean, Hannah and I have talked about this before. We, we uh, you know, it's, it's been a point that you know, we share uh, abolitionist uh, politics. And you know, the doctrine of hell, uh, the, that whole idea is, it is the kind of cosmic projection of our carceral ethics and politics in which God is the ultimate judge and, and uh, the, the, the ultimate kind of police system. And, and I think universalism says an, a, a firm no to that, um, that that way of thinking about God, that way of thinking about, about humanity is to be rejected and replaced with um, a, a different account that, that does fundamentally see the world um, in a different way that doesn't that rejects the the friend enemy distinction ultimately mm-hmm. i i think that's probably at the core of it that christianity as it has traditionally been practiced and the doctrines of hell and damnation that go along with it um, have conditioned christians for centuries to see others as rejected, others as the enemies, both of God and also, and therefore of them. Uh, and so, and as a result of that, 
able to be colonized, able to be enslaved, able to be subjugated and, uh, you know, um, used for their own benefit, uh, abused. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ethical implications of a doctrine of hell that are pernicious and have worked their way into Christianity for a long, long time. One of the things I think I most appreciated about David Bentley Hart's book and something I, I want to kind of stress in my own work is uh, universalism fundamentally understands that we are all connected, that we're, that, that we're connected mm. in a way that my salvation is impossible if anyone is condemned. If anyone is, mm. is, is, is wholly and utterly lost, I am not able to be saved. Like, and so we're, we're in this together uh, and, and we can't extract a person's identity uh, as, a, as a kind of pure monad out of the mass of humanity. Um, this is not possible. I am shaped by virtue of the visible and also invisible connections of millions upon millions of people, right? My identity, who I am, is the product of the countless forces and, and impact of, of, of everyone who's ever lived in, in some sense, right? We're, we're all connected mm -hmm. in that regard. And so the, the traditional doctrines of hell uh, deny that fundamental fabric of, of to be a creature, to be a creative person, to be in connection with the rest of the cosmos, uh, the rest of the world. And so uh, what universalism does ethically is say, uh, is, is condition us to see ourselves in connection with others, to see ourselves as bound up with other people's fates, um, to recognize that my life, my history, my identity, my existence is inseparable from, from everyone else. Uh, and I think that ought to and, and would shape how somebody lives in the world in profound ways. You know, I often think about the prodigal son story, and I don't think, uh, at least the way that the father is talked about in that story, I don't think the, fa the that father would have sat there for the rest of his life waiting for his son to come home, right? And I don't think at any point that father would have been like, you know what, I give up. He can do his thing, and I'll never see him again. And he like, I, and I I would be unwilling to welcome him back yeah. home. I don't think the father in that story would have ever done that. So to think, you know, if we're supposed to think of the prodigal son story as any sort of uh, metaphor for who God is in our lives, then at what point would God ever be willing to say, you know what, I give up? They're unredeemable. <laughs> I, I don't think if the prodigal, the, the father in the prodigal son yeah. story is unwilling to do that, then certainly I don't think God would either. That's, that's ultimately David Bentley Hart's main point is that um, most Christians believe in a God who is less morally uh, trustworthy, uh, somebody who's less, less worthy of emulation and worship than, than the average good person that we know in our lives. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's a really, uh, that's a disturbing reality is if, if why why worship such a deity <laughs> there's there's nothing yeah. compelling about that vision of god yeah our, our friend trip often says something along the lines of like i wouldn't let the calvinist god even babysit my kids <laughs> exactly no no it's it's a horrible demonic view of god uh there's nothing about that that's even remotely um compelling and yeah so no i i i agree it's if we're going to have a, a, a version of god that's in any way worthy of worship you have to believe in universalism Mm -hmm, mm hmm. Absolutely. Uh, last question. Last couple of questions, David. How do you hope this book inspires and liberates its readers? 
I'm, you know, it's, uh, I would have hoped that maybe by, by now there might be more productive conversation on this topic, but we're still sort of stuck in a lot of the same uh, debates and, and conflicts. And in some ways it feels like we're regressing in, in other areas uh, societally. So I do hope that in some ways this book helps bring some more people uh, a sense of the breadth of Christian theology and the possibilities mm -hmm. That are resident that are resident within the Christian faith, that you aren't forced to pick just an either or binary. Um, it's not this or this, and and if those two options don't work for you, then you're you're out of luck. There are just so many options available to 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 explore, and I hope this book um, ignites some some people's minds uh, to challenge them to explore things a little more deeply and uh, see things a little more in a more complex and diverse way. Yeah, I think, at, you know, at the end of the day, even though there are these differences between each of these authors and how they understand Christian universalism, I think there's still this thread that for each one of them, that God's love will never end for each and every one of us, and that God wants to redeem each and every one of us. And that desire uh, of God's redemption for each and of each and every one of us will never end either. And so uh, I, I think there's that through that, that thread that uh, connects them all. And uh, I, I think that really should shape the way we live and, uh, you know, think about ourselves existentially, but also, you know, how we live in the world. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that through line uh, of universalism is certainly there, even though obviously each one of these authors uh, articulates it a little differently. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Last question, David, how can listeners get connected to you and your work and where should they get the book? Um, you can find the book at Baker Academic. Um, they, their website, uh, will you, know, you can find me there. Um, I also have a website at dwcongden.com. Uh, you can find me also for while it still exists uh, on Twitter or now known as X. <laughs> and uh, so you can find me on, on there on social media. Um, but uh, yeah, and also I have another book coming out in a couple few months from Cambridge called Who is a True Christian? So uh, we check it will, out. We'll chat about that one too. Looking forward to it. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David. I know I took a little bit more of your time than I mentioned at the beginning, but uh, this is such a fascinating topic uh, for me. And I, I've got even a million other questions I could ask, but uh, I, I'm so appreciative of the work that, uh, you know, this work in, in my life. I, I'm appreciative of just you in my life over the last, what's well, probably been at least six years now, uh, six and a half years, I would say. And so I, I'm just really grateful for your friendship and, and what uh, you, you've meant for me. And, and uh, it's just so cool to see kind of our careers, uh, uh, you know, intersect in all these different ways. And so I'm just appreciative of you and appreciative of this book. Thanks, Mason. It's been great. You can get connected with David and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.